Welcome to the Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Martin Luther, um, he introduced his 95 Thesis with this idea, um, and this is a statement that he, that was there. Um, he said, uh, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended the, that the entire life of the believer should be repentance. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of the believer should be repentance. I, uh, I used to teach this and teach the junk out of it. I taught this hard. And, and I believe that. I believe that the Christian life is intended to be an experience of catching a glimpse of the goodness of Jesus. And when you realize how good he is, it, typically it leads you to putting off parts of your old man. And so all of my life is me humbling myself before God, acknowledging his beauty, ad- admitting my brokenness and conforming to his image. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? It was maybe five or six years ago that there was this... Um, this move in Christian teachers um, that 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 are sometimes referred to as like hyper grace teachers or some kind of derogatory term. Sometimes they're called cheap grace or greasy grace teachers. Um, there's a movement, uh, and they really had some traction a few years ago. And 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 they were teaching um, that grace. How do you say this well? They were they were they were saying things like this. The Protestant reformers did not go far enough. When we get done, there will be a new Protestant Reformation, and 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 everyone will know that Luther was not reformed uh, reformed enough. They were saying things like this: if if any if any preacher tells you to repent, repent after the cross, if you've come to know Jesus and then they tell you to repent, they don't understand the gospel and they're demeaning the blood of Jesus. The problem with that statement is that Jesus in Revelation tells the church at Laodicea, he tells them to repent and do the works that you did at first. And then they were saying things like, if, uh, one, one guy I read, for instance, said, it's, it's high time for the church to get rid of God-pleasing. The problem is, again, in, the, in our text this week, it's going to say that you should seek out how to please God. And last week, our text said, um, don't grieve the Holy Ghost. Don't grieve the person of the Holy Spirit. And so um, they say, don't, don't work to please God. But, but I'm going, but the text says I should. The text says that I should seek how to please, please God. And then in response to this idea that of being called hypergrace, that's probably the most common term. We were, people were, were writing books and they were, they were calling them hypergrace teachers. And they would, they would say, there's no such thing as hypergrace. You can't possibly communicate grace enough. There, if, if I'm a hypergrace teacher, then they were using that as almost a badge of, of privilege then. Uh, if I'm a hypergrace teacher, that's a good thing because you can't possibly teach grace enough. And I agree with them. You can't teach grace enough. But Jude says in chapter 1 verse 4 that you can pervert grace. You can't, you can't emphasize true grace enough. No, you, you cannot emphasize true grace enough. But Jude says, beware because there are some who will pervert the grace of God into licentiousness, denying our master and Lord Jesus. Pervert the grace of God into the licentiousness. That means they'll use the grace of God as a license to live however they want to live. And so then in Romans 6, Paul says this. So what then? Should we continue in our sins so that grace may abound? And his answer is, of course not. Of course we shouldn't. 
And so I wrestled, man. I'm just, just to be really straight, I'm, I don't know, 22, a youth pastor. I'm teaching. When you catch a glimpse of Jesus, it's going to change all of your life. And then this, these wave of books comes out and I start to deal with it. And I start to read it. And I literally am like slamming my head into the table, trying to understand what they're saying. And, um, to the point I about make myself crazy. And I was sitting, um, I was youth pastoring in Spartanburg and one of my friends was living in Columbia and we met somewhere in between and it's like Fats Cafe is the only restaurant in between. And so we were sitting in Fats Cafe and, um, I forgot my wallet in Spartanburg. So we had to buy my dinner and then put gas in my car. That's called getting hustled. Um, hey, 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 hey. Um, and we're talking about a book that his church was teaching. And I, I read this book and read this book and reread this book and argued with this book. And it was saying things like this, like the Christian should never repent. And I'm like, I, I can't get with it. And um, literally to the point, I'm going to make myself crazy. And we're talking about the ideas. And I, I started I started to cry. At We were actually sitting in the car at this point. I started to cry. And I said, I said, the problem is that Jesus has been too good to me. The problem is, is that he has been so gracious to me and I don't want to displease him. Like the problem is, is that he is, he has loved me. Yes, while I was a sinner, he lavished his perfect grace on me, Ephesians 1. He's blessed me with every blessing, Ephesians 1. Yes, he's been so good to me that I can't, I can't just displease him. Like I can't. I don't, I, the problem is, is that he's been too good and I don't want to displease him. And I, um, as I, as I thought that through on the, on the drive home, not to pat myself on the back because I don't intend to, but I think that's the posture of every true believer is that when Jesus has been that good to you, you wouldn't dare pervert his grace into licentiousness. You wouldn't dare use his, his grace as an excuse to live in your sexual sin. You wouldn't dare use his grace as a sin, as an excuse to keep on gossiping, to keep on and live how you want to live. When you get, when you get a glimpse of how good he is, you want to bow all of your life. And now what we're slipping into is what's called lordship salvation. And so I am a bit, and I use the term a bit, um, Exactly as it means. I'm a bit of a lordship salvationist. And what lordship salvation means is this, is that when you get married, when I married my wife, right? Like she's a, she's not in the room, so I can be honest. Just kidding. Y'all don't, don't tell her that. Um, she is in the room. She's waving back there. Um, my wife is a great cook, um, but we're, we're, but not so good with money. Like, when I marry her, I marry Oliver. She's a great cook, and she's not so good at money. I can't say, I'm going to marry my wife's humor, but not marry the fact that she's not good with money. No, like, we now share a life, and so you marry Oliver person. And in the same sense, you don't come to Jesus and say, I love your grace, and then say, no, but I don't want your lordship. You don't come to communion with, and, and think, just think for a minute. What, did, what does it mean when we say he's our Lord and Savior? And that's what Jude said, is that they'll pervert the grace of God into licentiousness and deny what? Our master and our Lord. And so Jesus says things like this. He says, you'll know a tree by its fruit. A good tree will produce good fruit and a bad tree will produce bad fruit. And then he says things like this in, in, in John that I used to teach forever. And I don't think I quite understood what he was saying. But what he says is, if you love me, you will obey me. It's not a manipulative phrase. He's not saying, if you love me, then you'll do what I say. It's not like manipulation, like with your husband or wife. I know y'all been trying to do that to your spouse and it ain't working. It's not like that. It's a plain statement. If you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, this is what you'll do. It's not, not manipulative. If those who love Jesus obey Jesus. 
And then John says stuff like this. He says that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. And if anyone says that they are in him, yet they live in darkness, they're a liar and they don't practice the truth. Lordship. If you, if, if you have come to embrace Jesus, you have come to embrace his lordship and he's master. And, and the fact that he's master to a true believer is wonderful and beautiful. And the least I can do is submit to you after how good you've been to me, man. Lordship. Now that idea can be taken too far. And that's what I'm saying. Like here context. Cause what I'm not saying is that, that, that you're not a real Christian unless you live perfectly. No, that's not what I'm saying. I believe in progressive sanctification. I believe that, that today there are some areas in my life that 20 years from now, God will have worked out. And God in his loving kindness and in his graciousness is leading me into holiness. And so, no, I am not perfect today. I am still flawed and brokenness, broken. But as I'm learning to submit to his lordship, I am growing in holiness. So what I am saying is this, what Jesus would say, is that if a tree continues to produce bad fruit, then it must not be a good tree. And so I am saying that, no, I'm not saying that if you got saved yesterday that your life should be perfect. But I'm saying if you got saved 30 years ago and nothing in your life has changed, then maybe you weren't really born again. And that's what the text says. That's an honest, uh, honest reading and an honest interpretation of the scripture. And so hash all that out. I'm, I'm, I'm not legalistic. And so I do think even that Christians can struggle. I think Christians have seasons, little bouts, all of that. So again, I'm not saying that, that that perfect life is an expression of Christianity, but, but lordship is. And I am saying that over time you should grow in Christ likeness. And what we just slipped into is a conversation about, about the, the, the sinner's prayer. Because what we've done in, in recent years is we've, we've bought a lie that the sinner's prayer is some kind of encampment. And if we can just get people to repeat after me, then they would be born again. Now, the, now, 200 years ago, the sinner's prayer wasn't really a thing. And people would go to church for years and say, God, please save me. Please save me. And we're frustrated with that. We're like, use your faith and get saved. But today is a completely the opposite side of the coin. It's just repeat the words and then you'll be born again. But, but that's, that's not really what the text says. The sinner's prayer is an expression of what's going on in someone's heart. But just saying the words, if the, if the heart's not happening, isn't, it's not a, it's not a magic trick. Does that make sense? So you can't just tell your kids, repeat after me. You know what I'm saying? That would be beautiful if it was, but that doesn't mean they've come to real faith. And so what we've just slipped into there is the fact that there may be people who have prayed the prayer, but have never really submitted to the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. And that's a sad thing. And so we want to, we believe perfectly that salvation is by grace alone, but, but it's applied through faith and real faith is coming to the goodness of God, submitting your heart, repenting and saying, Jesus, I want all of you. I love you. I want all of who you are. Faith has to do with what you do with Jesus. So, so, so you can't just repeat the words and ignore and, and never do anything with Jesus and then be born again. That's a cheapening of what it means to be born again. Do you guys kind of hear what I'm saying? So again, in context, Remember, we're talking about progressive sanctification. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not saying that if you've ever struggled, you're not a, you're not a believer. I'm not saying that if you get in a wreck today and you say a four letter word and then you die, you're going to hell because you said a four letter word. I'm not saying any of that, man. I'm saying God's love is so great, but you gotta do something with God's love. And, and to come to Jesus is also to come to his lordship. And, and to really be born again is to know that and to celebrate that. Is that okay? Okay, so let's read our text for this week. Again, I don't have a clue where I am in these notes. 
5, 1 through 21 is our, is our passage. Therefore, Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure and who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, uh, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God that the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So again, what do you do with the text that says that, that those that are sexually immoral and pure or covetous have no place and have no inheritance in the kingdom of God? I'm suggesting, again, not that the Christian never struggles with sexual immorality, but they don't lay in it. If, 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 if someone lays in sexual immorality and that becomes their identity, and I'm just going to live how I want to live sexually, then I would say, no, you've never really come to Jesus. And that's what Paul means here. And he's saying, don't be deceived. Don't let people deceive you. The, the grace of God leads you to purity. So, so here we go. The first thing he says is this, is that you should walk in love. Be imitators of him. Copy him. And, and Jesus here, um, let me get to the passage. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and he, Christ gave himself for us as a fragrant um, offering and sacrifice to God. So in that statement, we see Jesus living out his words that, that to fulfill the law is to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor. And so now he's saying, be an imitator of Jesus, walk in love. Jesus loved God and gave himself as a fragrant offering for God. And Jesus loved people. He gave himself up for you. Now walk in sacrificial love. I'm going to be a little heady for a second. I know sometimes that can be hard, but, but it's important. When we left Ephesians 3 and we stepped into Ephesians 4, we officially stepped into ethics. Okay, now we're talking about ethics as a science to some extent, not perfectly. But, but we're talking about how one lives, how should you live as a believer. Um, and so, traditionally, Christian scholars, Christian philosophers, we have posed this argument to atheists, to um, agnostics, Right now, there's a discussion between Christian philosophers and um, naturalists. Now, remember, we talked about this before, but a naturalist is someone who only can, the only thing that exists is what you can see and touch. So for a naturalist, there is nothing outside of this world. And we got here through the Big Bang, and we developed through evolutionary theory and through um, 
what's the word? Survival of the fittest. And so conversation between Christian philosophers and naturalists historically has gone like this and is going like this today. Christian philosopher says to a naturalist, you have no grounds for morality. They, we say to a naturalist, if all life is, is this random process of events banging around, then you have no reason to care for the um, mentally handicapped. Why would you care for the mentally handicapped? Why would you care for the physically impaired? And the naturalist historically has kind of shifted this argument. But today what's going on, I know you guys are so interested in this, but I promise you it's going to matter in a second. Um, today what's going on is the, the naturalist, everyone say naturalist, is responding to that argument. And just, just last weekend, one of the leading philosophers, um, agnostic philosophers, gave a, gave a discussion on this. And, and the response is essentially this. The naturalist is saying that I can live a moral life because the way that I treat other people matters. So what the naturalist is saying is that if I have a good work ethic and I respect my boss and I treat people with kindness, chances are I'll get a promotion. And so now I believe in work ethic as, a, as, an, as an ethic, as a moral, or a moral stance because it benefits me later. And so... The naturalist is saying, I should um, treat my wife with respect, and my wife will treat me with respect. Therefore, respecting my wife has become an ethic. And so they're building a ground. And it's not actually bad reasoning, because essentially what they're arguing for is what we call um, sowing and reaping, right? The principle of sowing and reaping. And, and, and so, for instance, um, Proverbs is filled with these kind of ideas. And, and Jesus, remember Jesus says to Peter, you live by the sword and you'll die by the sword. So they're saying the same thing. If When I'm angry, if I act out in violence, then the chances are someone else is going to be violent to me, and so I don't act out in violence because because I don't want someone to be violent to me, and that becomes the ethic. Now, I'm having a discussion with a nerd friend, because that's what nerds do on the phone, about this argument that was just presented, and it's it's really not a bad argument, and the scriptures support this, like Proverbs is filled with um, sowing and reaping ideas. Um, but as we talked, I, I, we, I started to press it a little bit because this essentially turns into what, what I'm calling sowing and reaping or a benefit-driven morality. Everyone say benefit-driven. So I treat my wife with respect so that she'll treat me with respect. I work hard so that my boss will give me a raise in the future. The problem is, is that at some point that breaks down. Okay, benefit-driven morality doesn't work when you are, this is an extreme example, but sometimes extreme examples will help boil down motives. If, if I get caught in a alley today with um, a man with a gun, and it's me and a random stranger, let's say a random 14-year-old girl, and the guy says, I'm going to kill one of you, which one am I going to kill? I have to make a decision now that there's no benefit to. Does that make sense? So now, what I'm trying to impose on you, and this is an intellectual idea, but it matters, is that Christianity does not simply present a benefit-driven morality. It presents a morality that's driven by sacrificial love. So in my system, when a 14-year-old girl has a, a, a barrel to her brain, I say, no, I'll take her place. I step in, I sacrifice my life for the sake of someone else, and there's no benefit there. You, you may say there's a benefit to the fact that your family may respect you or you'll have a legacy. But say, say not. Say they're going to shoot me and throw me in a lake and I'm, no one's ever going to know what happened to me. And my wife's just going to think I disappeared. There's no honor in it. I still take a bullet for that girl based on sacrificial love. And not only do I say it's right, I say it is the absolute most right thing you could ever do. So in a benefit-driven 
how does a naturalist say, I will take a bullet for a 14-year-old girl when there's nothing beyond life? There's no benefit here. There's no, and if, and if life is a process of natural selection, and why would you, why would you submit natural selection? The 14-year-old can die. She's not as strong as you, right? And so, so the argument is not that the atheist would not take the bullet for the 14-year-old girl. I think most people in our society would. But the argument is that you, you don't take a bullet for a 14-year-old girl because you're a naturalist. You take a bullet because you realize that life is beautiful, meaningful, that that girl has value, and because God has imprinted himself upon you, you take a bullet because you know that sacrificial love is the chief ethic. And that's what scripture presents. Did that make sense, that concept? It's different. It's very different. And so all of life is this way. And so there, there are times where you should work hard. And this is scriptural. It's not bad. Again, Jesus saying to Peter, you live by the sword and you're going to die by the sword. Don't live by the sword. Um, same thing. We're doing financial peace right now. So use your money well and you'll, you'll have more money. Okay? That's, that's not a bad ethic. But that's not the supreme chief ethic of Christianity. Paul says that the supreme chief ethic of Christianity is love. Walk in it. Walk in sacrificial love. And, and then, okay, so my, my nerd mind just got wild on this this week. Um, Jesus, when you hold a banquet, don't invite those who can pay you back later. Invite the poor who can't pay you back. Jesus, what good is it to you when you love, when you love those who love you? Even the sinners do that. Love your enemy. Love people who don't return it. Do you, do you catch Jesus' concepts? Love, love people who can't even respond with love. In doing so, you elevate sacrificial love as the chief ethic. I make decisions based on love, not based on what's going to be good for me. Jesus says, even the Gentiles do that. Be, you want to be wild? You want to be Christian? You want to honor the beauty and the majesty of Jesus? Love people who can't love you back. Bless those people who won't bless you back. Be generous when everyone around you is incredibly angry and will never respond with generosity. Because by being generous, you are, you are elevating the character and the person of Jesus. You are highlighting the nature of Christ. You are promoting the person, uh, the wonder of Jesus' ethic. And, and, and there, people catch a glimpse of who Jesus is. Benefit-driven morality, a sacrificial love ethic that rises to the surface. And Paul says, walk in it. And then to tie the other thought in, as I, again, like, killed myself on the scripture this week. I actually had two weeks, so it was beautiful. Um, is to not walk into sacrificial love is only a testimony to the fact that you've never experienced it. And so, again, to go back to how do we know who's really in Christ? I think those who have experienced sacrificial love now promote the ethic and now live from it and now give financially and now love the downtrodden and now invite people over to dinner who aren't going to elevate your social status, but you love them just to love them because love is your chief ethic. So he says, walk in love. Then, he, then, he, then again, he says that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. And, and he gave himself up as a sacrificial offering to God. And so when Jesus honored the love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, he expressed it. And now Paul says, this is how you make decisions. And so I'm jumping all over the place. But, but Paul will argue that we're not under the law. He'll say this on multiple occasions. You're not under the law. But then he will promote this idea that sometimes he calls the law of Christ. He'll say, but you're under the law of Christ. Or sometimes, like in Romans 13, he calls it the law of love. 
And so he says the Christian, again, he's arguing this idea. The Christian ethic is, is not, and this is what's beautiful, and this is what like blew my mind this week. The Christian ethic is not necessarily live holy, live righteous, so that God will love me. Because God already loves me. If I still have to submit to the law, then when my neighbor needs help, say the scenario, say my neighbor's tire popped. I have a moment of, should I help her? I could either go, I have to help my neighbor with her tire in order that God will be pleased with me. Or I can understand that God is already pleased with me. Therefore, I can help my neighbor with her tire for love's sake, just to love her and bless her. So the beauty is, is that God actually liberated us from the law in order that we could fulfill the law of Christ. He gave you his perfect love so that you're not making decisions in order to earn his love, but you're making decisions in order to replicate his love. It's interesting when you let your mind roll it around for a while. Then he says this. He says, first, uh, first he says, walk in light. And then he says, or he says, walk in love. And then he says, walk in light. And now, so to walk in light and to walk in love can't be contradictory because he gives you both commands. Our culture is really frustrated with that right now because essentially what he's arguing is that, that light exposes darkness. So, if, if the enemy's tactic is to kill, steal, and destroy, correct? The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And how does he do so? He, does, he has a, many, a lot of means. But one of his chief means is sin, is, is immorality, is, is, is darkness. Um, and so if the wages of sin is death, okay? And not just eternal death, although that's chiefly what it means. But the wages of sin is death and death now. So to be dramatic, um, start start abusing alcohol today and 10 years from now you're going to be alcoholic could lose your family there's there's repercussions to it in the sowing and reaping sins you sow to sin and you reap death and so paul now says that you're to walk in love and part of walking in love is to walk in light and so to walk in light means to yes walk in truth but it also means to expose to others the fact that they're walking in darkness and so now it's prophetic there's a prophetic bent to walking in love, and that prophetic voice calls out darkness. And so, for instance, the Christian should say to the, to the culture, allowing, and, and I talked to, to FCA, to the um, uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, like their leaders um, yesterday, um, high school kids, and I was telling them that, uh, that our cultural narrative is, is that in high school, you should have as much fun as you could have. You should get drunk for the first time. You should have sex in high school. If you don't have sex in high school, what are you doing? And our cultural narrative is that high school is about you having fun because you're never going to get to go to high school again. Um, the Christian who walks in light exposes the fact that that narrative is faulty, man. That, 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 that having sex in high school is not going to lead to a future beautiful and bound, like a rich marriage. It's, it's going to lead you to depression and broken. The, the Christian exposes the fact that getting drunk in high school leads to alcoholism 20 years later. The Christian exposes the fact that, that trying drugs at a high school party just because you want to get high for the first time, it actually could lead you into a life of drug addiction. And the Christian is constantly exposing that life is sowing and reaping and that, that you're actually walking in darkness and you're sowing darkness and you're not walking in real love. And so now the Christian who walks in love also walks in light. And what that means is that that Christian has a prophetic position and that prophetic position is to say to culture, abortion is wrong. Sexual immorality is wrong and we say so because of love not because we're religious follow it follow i know it's a deep thought i say to the culture abortion is wrong not because i want to be arrogant not because i want to be pious not because i want to condemn someone but i say it because 
of love. I'm saying you're going to do something you're going to regret later, number one. Number two, there's purpose and destiny on that young baby's life. God is knitting that baby together in your womb. God is going to bring redemption. God has a purpose and plan for that baby. Don't do this. I'm not saying it in condemnation just to boost myself up. In love, I'm still prophetic. I'm still calling it out, but I'm calling out there's, there's destiny. There's life. I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm encouraging you towards the beauty of what God created you for. And so the Christian who walks in love also walks in light. And again, that's radically different than our cultural narrative. Our, our culture says, to walk in love is just to nod and smile at everybody. And so love sometimes is confrontational. When my daughter goes to put a fork in the light socket, I just don't go like this. I kick her. You know what I'm saying? Like you give her, this is my chance. You, you boot her. No, that's not true. But you, you lift your voice. You say, don't, man, don't. Don't. In lo- but in love. And that's where, that's where the religious spirit will grab hold of the prophetic idea and it will beat it because the religious spirit loves to condemn people. And so... We can't let that happen. We can't get our wires crossed. We need to step into the prophetic role of the Christian to be light, to expose darkness. But you expose darkness from love with the posture of love and, and not just to condemn people. But in hopes that this, if, if, I'm, if I'm talking again to a woman who's thinking about abortion and I'm bringing the light to surface, I'm saying, no, think about this. Think this through. My hope is her benefit. Okay, I am loving you sacrificially by risking the fact that you might hate me, by risking the fact that culture is going to chew me and up, spit me out in order to... In order to lead you to a place of life, this is about you. This is about you not regretting this. This is about your baby fulfilling the purpose of God in his life. It's not about me being right or me casting stones. It's not about that. This is about, this is about love. So there is a such thing as a prophetic voice that operates in love, and that's what you're called to. But if you're not careful, condemnation will slip in, and the enemy will use you like a hammer, man, just to smash people. And that is disgusting. And so, so leads us to our third point. Paul says then, walk in wisdom. And, 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 and that, I have to get the verse, but he says, um, look carefully as how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So now you have to walk in sacrificial love. You have to expose darkness, but you need to do it in a spirit of wisdom. And, and part of what he's saying is not to let people, part of what he's saying is to, to not let people convince you that, that light is darkness and darkness is light. Part of what he's saying is not don't let people pervert the grace of God into licentiousness. He, he's, he's repeating Jesus' words in his own words. The good tree produces good fruit. Don't, and then he says this, don't yoke yourself with people who live in darkness and claim to live in light. Be wise. Don't do that. But there's also an element of this that we have to step into our prophetic role, which is calling out darkness, but in love. And that takes wisdom and discernment and compassion. So now, just to break down really quick for you, what we just discovered from Ephesians chapter 5 is that you should walk in love, sacrificial love, that's not concerned with your own benefit, but is concerned with loving God, honoring the mass, the, the, the lordship of Jesus, the master Jesus, and loving people as yourself. So caring about others' needs, even as you would care for yourself, not concerned with whether or not they're going to bless me back, but just to bless them. Then I walk in light, and light does not allow darkness doesn't allow the enemy to mask himself as an angel of light. You remember scripture says that? That Satan attempts to mask himself as an angel of light. That Satan attempts to tempt that 15-year-old girl. Satan attempts to deceive. He lures people into deception. And then in deception, they live in darkness. And, and Paul's saying, no, turn the light on. Just keep turning the light on. Every time you see a 15, 16, 17-year-old who, who Satan's attempting to lure, turn the light on. 
just keep, just keep turning the, like, expose it. You, your job now is to expose the tactics of the enemy. He came to still kill and destroy. If you turn the light on, people will see. Just keep turning the light on. That's part of your role. And then he says, be wise, man. Be really wise about who you partner with. Be wise about how you go about this. Walk in wisdom. So in conclusion, I got a conclusion in here somewhere. Eight pages later. Then he, then he does say, he says, don't, don't, be, don't be drunk on wine. Be filled with the Holy Ghost. We love that scripture. I still love it. Because what he's saying is, don't allow alcohol to be your influencer. Be influenced by the Holy Ghost. Allow the Holy Spirit to be your influencer. Live every day, not going to a bottle for relief, but go to the Holy Ghost for relief. And, and don't try to get drunk so that you can be, really be yourself. But get, get filled, and I don't love the terminology, but get, get soaked in the Holy Ghost and let, then let your personality flourish. Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' words, um, Jesus establishes, he, he places the, the cornerstone of your ethic. And by that I mean the cornerstone of how you should choose to live your life. Is every decision you make, you should ask yourself, is this sacrificial love or not? Am I operating out of only a benefit-driven morality? Or am I operating out of what's best for First, what honors God and what's best for people around me. So Paul, again, just dropped sacrificial love as your chief ethic, the way that you should live your life. Is it love or is it not love? I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We talked about him before because when, uh, to, to say so quickly, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a borderline pacifist, um, if not a full-blown pacifist. But when Hitler came to power and started to murder people left and right, Bonhoeffer decided that it would be love to murder Hitler. And that was, that, that assaulted his ethic. That, his, he was a pacifist, man. He does not believe in violence. But he, when he, he wrote his last book, Ethics, and he was, they, he died before he finished the book. But in writing his last book, Ethics, he came to the conclusion that love must be the chief factor in your decision making. And that in this situation, to love would be to remove from power the person that's destroying thousands of people. And when love's your ethic, then it's not necessarily about chopping up the law. It's about what's, what's doing, how to, how to honor people, how, how to care for the well-being of people, how to really honor God. What would really honor God in a moment where a tyrant is killing thousands of people? And Bonhoeffer said, yes, I'm a pacifist, but I think I'm going to try to kill the man. It's, it's different. It's a different way of thinking. So Jesus' statement that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself is, is not just this nice confession that we repeat, but it's practice. You're supposed to practice it. Drive it into your being. When you get up in the morning, who am I going to love today? And when someone needs your help, right, like needs your help, I, I'm going to step out and love them even though there's not been. You, you practice it. This is what the Christian does. He practices sacrificial love because in practicing sacrificial love, he is proclaiming the glory of Jesus. And again, he's shown us that holiness is love and love is holiness. And so if you are, if I asked you, are you a holiness church? You could say yes. But the same question would be, are you a sacrificial loving church? And those things don't conflict. It's the same question. If, if, if your standard of holiness is the person of God, is the Trinity. If you're, if you're, if the way that you're going to define holiness is the person of the Trinity. And you remember what holy means. It means like awfully separate. I was doing a word study. I'm talkative today. Forgive me. Um, 
I was doing a word study this week on the word holiness, and the first thing that comes up is awful. And I thought, I must have grabbed the wrong word. I must have grabbed the wrong thing. Um, but then I realized, no, that, that, that's what it means, awfully separate. And so if you define holiness as the awful separation of God, the perfect separation of the character of God, then, then, then holiness begins to be, the, the, the surest expression of holiness is Jesus on the cross of Calvary. And if the surest expression of holiness is Jesus on the cross of Calvary, then, then, then holiness is sacrificial love and living in a sacrificial way. And so holiness can't just be not doing this or that, but it must be how do you live? And so I could say to you, are you a holy church? And you could say, yes. And then I could say, but do you live sacrificially? In a, in a loving way. And if your answer is no, then you're not a holy church. That's the, that's the ethic that the scripture establishes. So go ahead and stand to your feet. So what I'm praying for, uh, what I'm going to pray for this week is that we have a like fresh encounter with the beauty of Jesus. That the like perfect wonder of Christ would, would, would encounter us this week. That the Holy Ghost would pour himself out on us in such a way that it would drive us again to sacrificial living. That we would begin to shift our lives as we encounter the love of God. And that's the beauty of God is that he doesn't ask you just to be holy. It's, I'm going to show you my holiness. I'm going to unveil myself to you. And as I unveil myself, then you'll see. And so what I'm asking for is an unveiling of the perfect holiness of God. So go ahead and extend your hands as I pray. God, we want to encounter you this week. We want to experience your perfect, your, your perfect holiness this week. Show us who you are. Show us who you are. That's what this is about, God. This isn't about anything else other than who are you. Show us your nature. Reveal us. Reveal to us your character. We want to know your ways. And that's what Moses meant. He want to know your ways. How do you operate? What is your person like? Show us, God. If you agree with us, amen. Show us, God. Show us, God, what you're like. Reveal to us your beauty. In Jesus' name I pray. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Sunday's sermon. Be sure to visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources.